Psalm 145, again, speaking of the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? How does that apply to us? Does it mean we're to be afraid? Not at all. The Word of God very clearly states out the kinds of things that are acquainting us with what God expects when He says He is to be feared. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is something that we should apply in our daily living. It is the fear of the Lord in the book of Proverbs over and over again that is spoken of there, as well as other places, that speak of a great blessing that comes to those who would live their lives in fear of the Lord. But it's not a fear of God's judgment. It's a fear of His reverent, holy nature. It's not fearfulness in that sense that we oftentimes think of fear. It's fear in reference to His awesomeness, how much greater He is than all of His creation. A reverential fear that is a fear that shows respect for His great mercy and love for us, His compassion for us. That's what we are finding as we read through the book of Acts. In our study of this great book of the New Testament, we find that there is definitely a sense of fear among believers in that way that I have just mentioned. And we're going to begin our study today in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, beginning with verse 31, where it says this, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Take note of the fact that Luke is telling us that in this very beginning of the church age, so many people had been coming to the Lord, and they all were primarily Jewish until persecution had come. That persecution was mostly the responsibility of one man whose name is Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. And he was given letters by the leadership in Jerusalem to go and in search of all those who named the name of Christ to put them in jail, persecute them, and even have them killed. He had letters to go as far as Damascus. That's how far that, by that time the church had spread. But again, it was all Jewish who, believers. There were no Gentiles the only one possible exception, and I don't really think of this as being a, a very likely thing, but many people believe that the eunuch that was on his way back to Ethiopia from Jerusalem was a Gentile. We're not told that he was a Gentile. As a matter of fact, at the very least, he was likely what we call a proselyte, one who was accepted by the Jews as a seeker who was not himself a Jew, or might have been related to somebody who was a Jew, but entered into a relationship, at least somewhat of a relationship with God, through that system that was established by Moses to allow them to come and worship the Lord, but not completely as though they were actually Jews. They were limited in how they could approach the Lord. He might have been a proselyte. Or it could be that he was a Jew. He had gone to the 
city of Jerusalem at the time of the feast, which was required of all Jews. So we're not really told about the Ethiopian eunuch. I believe he was at the least a proselyte, but not just a Gentile, not completely excluded from the worship because he was in Jerusalem to worship. So that having been said, the Gentile populations all around had not yet been introduced to the gospel. That was still to come. Paul was making a great effort to persecute the true church, and that's why the church began to spread out from Jerusalem throughout all of Judea, that southern region of Israel, and then into that territory, which we saw last week, of Samaria. Now, the Samaritans were half-Jews. They were a mixed breed. They were hated by full-blooded Jews because of their having intermarried with the Gentiles. Jews had a real problem with associating with Gentiles everywhere they went. And keep in mind that at this time, the Roman government was over them. They were subjected to the authority of Rome, a Gentile ruler. Oh, they were given religious freedoms, but they were still very much oppressed as a people. They hated Rome. They hated Gentiles. It was in their bringing up. They believed that Gentiles were nothing more than food for the flames of hell. They would not enter a Jewish, uh, uh, or rather a Gentile home. If they came into contact with a Gentile, they would do their best to keep their distance from that Gentile, oftentimes going to the other side of the street if they were walking down the street and the Gentile was heading their way. They did everything they could to avoid any kind of contact. But the Samaritans weren't much different. And yet, the Lord had, because of the persecution that started in Jerusalem, forcing the Jews who were believers in Christ to move out of Jerusalem into those other regions, they began to minister to the Samaritans within that region of Samaria, north of Judea, in the middle section, if you will, of the nation of Israel as we know it today. That's where we were last time. And we saw great things happening in Samaria. People were coming to the Lord in large numbers. God was moving out of Jewry into other parts of the world, just exactly as Jesus had instructed. Because remember, Acts 1, chapter 1, verse 8 says, Jesus speaking, you shall go into all the world, beginning first in Jerusalem, then into Judea, and then into Samaria, and in all the parts of the world, proclaiming the gospel message. They were forced to do that. It wasn't because they were thinking, gee, maybe we should get out of Jerusalem after all and go visit some of these other people groups. That wasn't their original intent. They were reluctant to move out into other areas. They were forced, basically, into that. But when they began to do that, lo and behold, God was moving mightily in that ministry to those other people groups. But still, the Gentiles were, well, I'm sorry, Lord, but uh, that's just not going to happen. 
That was their attitude. But because of what was going on in Samaria and because of what had happened to Paul the Apostle, or Saul of Tarsus, who will later become Paul the Apostle, because of what had happened to him and his great conversion that he had experienced, things began to change. Things began to lighten up as far as the persecution was concerned because that man, Saul of Tarsus, was no longer against Christ. He was a believer in Christ. That's the remarkable thing that we saw in our study the last time, the conversion experience of Saul of Tarsus. Great thing has taken place. But Saul's now, in this portion of Scripture, set aside for a moment. We'll get back to him. But this portion of Scripture that we're looking at today is going to reflect on some of the things that took place kind of as an intermediary step before Paul the Apostle comes back on the scene. Verse 32 says, Now it came to pass as Peter, Apostle Peter, went through all the parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now this is in the territory of Samaria. This is a great miracle that took place. A man had been lame for eight years. The Lord Jesus healed him. It wasn't Peter's effort. It wasn't what Peter had said to him. He didn't take any credit. Note that. He said, the Lord Jesus the Christ heals you. And that is a present perfect tense, which means that he's doing it now. Right now, Aeneas, you are in your bed, unable to walk, but Jesus is right now healing you. And by faith, Aeneas responded. And there was a great miracle that had taken place, and the people were, all of them, so impressed that the Word of God began again to spread in that region. Lydda is on the coast, the Mediterranean coast, of the nation of Israel, or it was. It's no longer in existence today. But that's where Peter had begun to minister, and he stayed there for a short period of time. But because of that particular miracle, word spread that Peter was in the region, and they all knew that Peter was one of the original apostles of Jesus Christ. And as the gospel of Christ began to spread, people began to recognize this man is a man of authority. This man is a man who walked with Jesus Christ. And so the word spread that he was nearby. And in verse 37 it says, But it happened in those days, verse 36 rather, at Joppa, which is just north of Lydda by about ten miles, at Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. So Tabitha is the Aramaic name. It means gazelle. And the Greek word for gazelle is Dorcas. Her name is Dorcas. And it says this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her and laid her in an upper room, and since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them, and when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. 
And all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. So they really are weeping because of the great loss that they are experiencing now with this passing on of this wonderful woman who was so great in her giving and willingness to serve. And it affected the entire community. So they've reached out to Peter, having found out that he was not that far away, hoping that he might come and minister to them somehow. I don't know that they were expecting anything like what is going to take place in this part of the text that we're reading, because it says in verse 40, but Peter put them all out, took them away, so that just he and Dorcas were left in the room. It's reminiscent to me of a time when Jesus was called to Jairus' house, who was a leader of the synagogue in Galilee. And Jairus' daughter had died, and she was laid in a room when Jesus and his disciples came to visit Jairus. And it was there that there were professional mourners outside wailing, which is typical what they did in that day, was to hire people to cry out for the dead in a wailing cry, lamenting the death. When Jesus came, he told them to stop because she's not dead, she's just asleep. They laughed at him, remember? But he took Jairus and his wife and three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, into the room where his 12-year-old daughter had been laying dead. And Jesus looked upon her, and with the great compassion of our Lord, spoke these words, Talithakumi means little child or little lamb, arise. The same thing now is taking place here in this story with Peter, standing before this woman who has died. And instead of Talitha, it's Tabitha, Kumi. And lo and behold, those words having been spoken, he knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Miracle. A resuscitation from death to life. What a beautiful story this is. What a remarkable miracle this is. And friends, don't tell me that God doesn't still do miracles. He does. And He has always been doing miracles. But this is a great thing. This is the first instance recorded in the book of Acts, anywhere in the New Testament, where such a great thing has taken place. Oh, the healing of Ananias was... Remarkable in its own. But this is a remarkable, remarkable, remarkable miracle indeed. It says in verse 41, Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it came to be known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. I should say so. What a remarkable thing this was. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. This is also quite amazing because Simon, as a tanner, was one of those kinds of individuals who was a Jew, but yet was not very highly respected because of his trade. 
because he dealt with dead bodies. And in dealing with dead bodies, he was constantly defiling himself, according to Jewish tradition, under the Mosaic law. But this man apparently is now a believer in Jesus Christ, and he's asked Peter, allowed Peter, to stay in his home. And Peter has accepted his invitation to do that. Now, take note of the fact that we see Peter in Samaria, which is something that he would not have wanted to do as a Jew pre-Christ. Now he's actually staying in a home of a tanner, which is something that he as a Jew would definitely never have wanted to do. But there's more coming, Peter. There's more that you need to understand about God's perfect plan for those outside of the nation of Israel. In verse 1 of chapter 10, there was a certain man in Caesarea, which is another 30 miles north of Joppa, called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people, the Jewish people, and prayed to God always. This man is not a Jew. This man is not a Samaritan. This man is a Roman soldier, a centurion, a Gentile. Roman army was broken up into several different groups. They had the legion, which was about 6,000 men. Then they had a cohort. There were six cohorts within a region. So there's about 600 men assigned to a particular, a thousand rather, yeah, a thousand men to a cohort. And then within that group, there were centurions, each of them over a hundred men. That's basically how the Roman army was organized. This man is a man of authority. In the New Testament, we see several references to centurions, all of them rather favorable references. Jesus ministered to, remember, a centurion whose slave was sick. And he commended the, Samaritan, um, the uh, centurion for his faith. He said, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. This centurion, I keep mixing up the Samaritan centurions because they're so similar, but the centurion is a Roman citizen, a Gentile. But he's praying to God of the Jews. He helps the Jewish people. He's very friendly with them, attempting to treat them with respect. And he's very, very well received by the Jews who have been so blessed by his generosity. He's in this Samaritan town of Joppa, and, or rather in Caesarea, and he is one who has feared God. That's a great start. That does not mean that he was already saved. It just means he was looking. He had a respect for the Jewish God much more so apparently than the pantheon of gods of the Roman Empire. He was a special man, and God had chosen him for a special purpose. It says in verse 3, at about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? 
So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Take note of the fact that an angel of the Lord spoke to Cornelius, called him by his name, and told him that there were some things that he needed to do and take careful note of the fact that there's a particular individual that you need to send for and is at this particular location in a particular town not far from here. He gave him so many details about what to do that could be no mistaking the command that was given to him had to be obeyed. And besides, this one who stood before him, an angel of the Lord, he was fearful, he was afraid because it was such a majestic vision that he had had and it was overwhelming to him. He had been praying and God is answering his prayer. That's not all. At the same time, God is working on the other side with Peter. Just like it was with Ananias and Saul of Tarsus. Remember in Damascus? On his way to Damascus, Saul was confronted by the Lord and the Lord gave Saul instructions to go to Damascus to a street called Straight and he was going to be able to see a man whose name was Ananias who would heal him and deliver him of his infirmity. Thank you for helping. On the other side of that, God has spoken to Ananias and said to him, Ananias, I want you to go to the street called Straight, to a house where this man named Saul of Tarsus is. And I want you to pray for him because he's a chosen vessel of mine. You see, God was working in both Ananias and in Saul at the same time. And so it is here with Peter and with Cornelius. But with Peter, it's a little bit more difficult. Peter needs to be persuaded. Peter needs some help from the Lord. And he gets it. It says in verse 9, The next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. It's about 12 o'clock. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. So while he's praying, he has this experience, a vision. It says in verse 11, he saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Beasts, Creeping things. Birds of the air. Jewish kosher laws required that they could only eat certain kinds of meat. They could eat certain kinds of insects. They could eat certain birds. But not 
all of them. For instance, with regard to the meat, only those animals who had a split hoof and chewed the cud could be eaten. So cows, lamb, great options. But they couldn't eat a camel meat or horse meat. That was against kosher regulation. Still is. I won't go into insects. I don't know why God would allow them to eat locusts, but they were acceptable. But the point is, this sheet that was laid down in front of him contained all of the unclean species. That's why Peter's response when the Lord said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. That verse 14 tells us Peter said, Oh, not so, Lord. Yuck! (laughs) In other words, Oh, that's terrible. I could never do that. I'm a Jew. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Not so, Lord. That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? You're telling the Lord who said, Do everything that I tell you to do if you want to call me Lord? And by the way, that still applies to all of us as well. And yet, Peter's here saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't care what you say. That's off limits. That's the impression that you get from Peter's strong response in this vision. But it tells us in verse 15, and a voice spoke to him again the second time, and this is key. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. What God has made clean. What has He made clean? What does this mean? Peter must have been wondering, what's going on here? You mean I'm supposed to be able to eat all of these things that I've been unable to eat before? Yes, Peter. A ham sandwich is a pretty good meal. He's breaking down barriers. What God has cleansed, let no one call unclean or common. And this was done, it tells us in verse 16, three times, and the object was taken up into heaven. Now, why did God give him such a vision as this? There's a reason. Peter's wondering, what was that all about? But while he's pondering these things, it tells us in verse 7, wondering within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate right at the right time. Think about it. The timing is perfect. Of course, that's God's doing, not ours. God has been in control of all of these events. And now he's bringing those men who were sent by Cornelius the day before. They've arrived just at the time that Peter has had this vision, and they're asking for Peter. It says in verse 18, They called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about this vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. How can you go wrong, Peter? God is in this. You don't understand it, Peter, but trust me, this is going to work out just fine. You don't know how to go about doing what you are going to have to do, but I'm with you. I'm sending you, and that should be enough. 
than it is always for all of us, is it not? Didn't Jesus say, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the age? He is with you. The great promise of the Word of God is that He goes with you. He goes before you to lead the way, to shine the light. He goes beside you to walk alongside you in fellowship. He walks behind you as your rear guard. I know many of you have heard me say this over and over again, and I'll continue to say it because it's so very real to me that my God surrounds me with His love. He even covers me in the shadow of His wings like a hen protects her chickens. That's our God. He places me on a solid rock, and you who are believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus is that solid rock, and He is the one upon whom you stand. He's the anchor of your soul. He is the founder of all of what we have learned about God. He's the finisher of our faith. And He's there with you. Always will be. Always has been. He's with Peter. And He's assuring Peter that these men have been sent because I'm the one who has arranged it. So go with them, doubting nothing. So then verse 21 says, Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason are you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. An angel talked to this Gentile and said that I'm supposed to come to his house? That's off limits. That's, 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 that's not anything that a Jew would ever do. I, I'm not ever going to consider entering into a Gentile home. Can't be right. Imagine that must be going through Peter's mind. But that vision that he'd had has come now to his thoughts. Perhaps there's a change in the way I should be thinking about these Gentiles. So it says, he invited them, verse 23, to lodge with them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. He's bringing some good, faithful Jews along with him. He's not going to go with these Gentiles by himself. He's going to make sure that there are other Jews with him. Whoever they were, we're not told, but they're witnesses to everything that's going to happen here so Peter doesn't get into trouble when he has to tell his Jewish friends, um, I just was in a Gentile home, um, and this is what happened. Yeah, right, Peter, sure. But he's got witnesses. So there's no doubt that will be so very clear to the rest of the Jewish believers as we move forward. It says in verse 24, In the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and called together his relatives and closest friends, all Gentiles. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. He believes that Peter's to be worshipped. Well, of course, Pope Peter would have said, kiss my toe. Peter said this, I'm a man. Stand up. I'm not to be worshipped. 
There's only one to be worshipped, and that is God. Don't worship men. Don't worship leaders in the church. Don't, don't worship anyone other than God. So it says in verse 27, as he talked with them, he went in and found many who had come together. And then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation? He's standing inside a Gentile's home saying that I ain't supposed to be here. This is not lawful for me to be here. He's basically telling them, you guys, you're unclean. And I, as a good, faithful Jew, am not supposed to be here among you unclean people. But, he says, God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. See, that's what the vision was all about. It wasn't about eating the, the, the animals that were unclean. It was about fellowshipping with those who he considered to be unclean. The Gentiles were first now being introduced to the gospel message. Listen to what he says in verse 29. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked them, what reason have you sent for me? He wants to hear from them. Explain what's going on here. Why am I here? He knows why. But he wants them to say. And this is what Cornelius says in verse 30. Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. And when he comes, he will speak to you. So he's repeating what we now have already read, that the angel of the Lord had spoken to him. And so he's informing Peter, this is what has taken place here in my home. So I sent to you immediately, he says in verse 33, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Peter didn't have time to prepare a sermon. He didn't have time to go through the scriptures and, and, and record for himself a bunch of notes that he could refer to that he could explain what he's there for. He didn't even know what he was there for exactly, but now he does. And so the Spirit of God, in those circumstances, that's what the way it should be. The Spirit of God takes over and uses Peter in a remarkable way to bring the gospel message to the Gentile world. And he says in verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth, and that's all he needs any of us to do, to be willing to open our mouth, to proclaim that which he has shown us. When we say... I have hid God's word in my heart that I might not sin against Him. Doesn't that mean that we have something that we can say to others who don't know the word of God? I hope that that's the case for all of you. I've hid His word in my heart that I might not sin against Him and that I might present His word to those who have not heard. How can they hear except one be sent? Peter has been sent and he's now ready to proclaim the gospel message and says this, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. He's no respecter of persons, Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female. It makes no difference to God. We are all cut from the same mold. We're all sinners in need of salvation. We all are by nature far from God and cannot enter into His presence because of our sin 
and it needs to be dealt with, whether a Jew or Gentile or whatever our state may be. If we have not known Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are still dead in our sins. But we have hope in Christ. And that's what Peter is going to say to these people that are sitting to listen to what he has to say about the gospel that he knows and wants to convey to them, even though they're Gentiles. He says in verse 35, But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The fear of the Lord is crucial. Fear of the Lord brings us to that place of recognizing we need Him. And when we have that fear of the Lord, we can then turn to Him and cry out to Him and say, God, I don't know what I can do, but I know that You are able to help me, to save me, to deliver me from this body of death. That's the heart of a true repentant heart. He says, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. He's willing to accept Him who comes to Him by faith. Then he says in verse 36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, he tells them, these are things that you've heard about. So it must be true that Cornelius and his household had seen, had witnessed, had known about the ministry of John the Baptist and also of Jesus while they were alive, while Jesus went throughout the entire region of Galilee, word had spread even to the Gentile populations. They were excluded, but they had heard And Peter's reminding them, these things are known to you. So I'm not telling you anything that you don't already fully know. But he says in verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed, the Jews, by hanging him on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed Him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before God, or by God, even to us who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. Peter is proclaiming the gospel message. The gospel message is simple. Christ came. Christ died. Christ was buried and raised again on the third day. That's the gospel. The resurrection as well as the death on the cross and his life as a man. That is what we proclaim as the gospel truth. Jesus came as a man because as a man, he could represent men to God. But as God, he could represent God to man. And so Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the only means by which men can be saved. Very clear in the Scriptures. He came, he died, he rose again. Paul agrees with that theology that Peter is giving here for now for the first time to the Gentiles. Paul is going to say the same thing over and over again in all the letters that are written for us in the New Testament Scriptures that Paul recorded for us. The message is the same. Christ is the Savior of all mankind. He's broken down the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. He set people free because of his willingness to go to the cross and prove that he 
is a perfect sacrifice that all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament Scriptures pointed to. He is the substitute that only He could do what He had done because He was sinless. This is the Word of God. This is what Paul, or rather Peter, has now proclaimed here before this Gentile crowd. And as he's saying these things, as he's speaking these wonderful words of truth, he says in verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Whoever of the Jews only. No. Whoever of the Jews and the Samaritans only? No. Whoever of all mankind, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, male, female, young, old, black, white, whoever. That's an all-inclusive word, the word whoever. Jesus himself pointed this out to them while he was with them. They didn't get it. They thought whoever only meant Jews. But now the barrier is completely taken down. Before we continue with the last several verses in chapter 9, or chapter 10 rather, of the book of Acts, I'd like you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, if you have Bibles with you. Ephesians chapter 2 is one of Paul's great letters. And in Ephesians, he speaks about the same sorts of things that have been presented here in the Gospel account of the book of Acts. In chapter 2, beginning with verse 11 of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 11, or 2.11 says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the Jews, those who are called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at times, at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. The Jews had a great advantage over the Gentile. They had a covenant with God. It was under the law. That covenant was something that they had great respect for. And they thought they alone were the recipients of that covenant. And it was up until Christ. And Paul is saying here in this letter, verse 13, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down that middle wall of separation. There is no more an issue between a Jew and a Gentile with regard to faith in Christ. We all are one in him. We all are one body together in him, both Jew and Gentile. And all of that which used to be separating us from each each other has now been torn down. He is our peace. Again, verse 15 says, That having been said, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, uh, uh, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, 
thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death that enmity between them. There's more that can be read in Ephesians chapter 2 that speaks of this unique arrangement that God has now made available to all men. And going back now to chapter 10 of the book of Acts, we'll close with these final thoughts. It tells us in verse 44, Then while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, the Jews, who believed, were astonished. As many as came with Peter, remember he brought seven Jews with him? They were astonished. Why? Because the Holy Spirit came upon them, and the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. What's it mean by the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, we saw that in Acts chapter 2. The gift of the Holy Spirit is that which happened on the day of Pentecost, when the church was first created by the Spirit of God coming down upon the Jews who were in Jerusalem, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and Peter referred to that experience as a gift of the Holy Spirit that was poured out upon them in Jerusalem. And he went on to say in chapter 2 of the book of Acts that that gift of the Holy Spirit was for all who would receive. He thought all Jews. Now he's seeing, nah, it's for all, inclusively, all men, everywhere, no matter what race, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. It tells us specifically, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So, how could they think otherwise? That which had happened to them as faithful Jews when the Spirit of God came upon them, has now taken place upon Gentiles as well. They were eyewitnesses to this. It needed to be that momentous. It needed to be that amazing, convincing. Because it's hard to convince a Jew of anything. Peter's convinced. And so are these other seven men with him. Because in verse 47, Peter says, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. We need more teaching. We need to understand more about this new experience that just has happened. And Peter was willing to stay with them. Later on in the book of Acts, we see Peter talking about this event arguing about it against all odds because the other faithful Christian Jews in Jerusalem were having a hard time accepting the idea that God would save a Gentile. But listen to me. What has taken place here, some refer to as Gentile Pentecost, it sort of was. It's a new beginning. The new beginning had taken place for Jews in Jerusalem, perhaps seven, eight, maybe ten years prior to this. But now there is a pouring out of the Holy Spirit to all mankind, beginning here in this city of Caesarea, on the banks of the Mediterranean Sea. And it's going to spread like wildfire 
throughout all the known world. The entire Roman Empire is going to be impacted by this event that has taken place in the centurion's home so many years ago. And now we sit here in this place. And as I look around at all of you, I see why God has done this. Because each one of you, myself included, have been given a great opportunity, a gift of the Holy Spirit, an empowering of the Holy Spirit. Those of us who know Christ, who have received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, are enabled, empowered, and given the privilege, the honor, and the command of the Holy Spirit to go into all the world, to proclaim this same gospel message to all who would hear it. Christ came. Christ died on a cross. Christ was resurrected from the dead on the third day. He lives. And because He lives, you all can live as well. That's the gospel message. That is what the Word of God is all about. That is what you and I as believers must continue to proclaim in these last days. That is what began in Caesarea and now has spread throughout the entire globe the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were baptized in water. Again, in the book of Acts, we see that over and over again. Baptism was a confirmation of the fact that they have already accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. They are believers and they are expressing their belief in Christ Jesus through the baptism in water that identifies them with Christ because in that water baptism they are immersed. They are put under the water typifying Christ's death, identifying with His death and being raised up out of the water. They are identifying with Christ's resurrection. Those of us who have been believers in Jesus Christ for any length of time, however long that may be, we know this to be true. We know this to be our own experience. And I invite anyone who is unaware of that wonderful grace that God has poured out through His Son, Jesus Christ, take that step of faith today and receive Him as your Savior. Receive Him as your Lord. Let Him give you that same Spirit of God that He poured out in that same day so many years ago. Let Him show you His great love and compassion. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger. Full of mercy and grace and love. He's here. And He wants to give all of that which He desires to give to everyone who would say yes 